0: The holidays are officially here, and if you're anything like me and love decorating your house, you need to do things differently this year. We've all been there. You have this one decoration you're searching for, and it seems like you've gone through every single bin, but still no luck. That's why you need to use Smart Labels. Smart Labels is the perfect storage system and is exactly what you need for your holiday decorations. You just buy a pack of Smart Label stickers that have a QR code on each one, slap one on your storage tote and use the smart labels app to catalog each item that you put away that way when you're ready to bring your decorations out next year you'll know exactly where everything is it's super easy to use and will save you the time and energy it takes to dig through those bins again and again to get started go to amazon and search for smart labels qr code stickers today Well, hello oddballs, it's your host, Bobby, and this is Oddities on Elm Street. Thank you all for joining me for episode 48. I'm glad to have you all here. Um, because it's just me here, we're going to jump right into our episode for today. The case we're going to talk about is absolutely horrifying. And technically, it's still unresolved, although we know pretty much who did this. They are just not serving time for their crime, and we'll get into all of that later. But let me first introduce you to Jessica Chambers. Jessica Chambers was a 19-year-old described as having striking blue eyes and a smile that would light up a room. In high school, she was a cheerleader, and her dream was to become a nurse. She was born to parents Ben and Lisa Chambers on February 2nd, 1995. Her parents divorced when she was young, but they stayed close. They actually lived just a few doors down from each other as Jessica was growing up. Her mom, Lisa, was a nurse, and her dad, Ben, owned a mechanic shop. She grew up in the small town of Cortland, Mississippi. Just to give you an idea of how small this place really was, In 2010, the population was only 511 people. So the idea that this was a place where everybody knew everybody really rings true here. And on December 6th, 2014, the entire community would be shocked. Around 8 p.m. that night, firefighters respond to a call. Two men had reported seeing a burning car on the side of a rural road. Upon arriving, they're looking around the scene, but there's no one there. There's no one around the car, and there's no one inside of it. It's clear, though, that this was done intentionally. This is a super desolate area. Why else would a car just happen to be on fire out here? All of a sudden, they see something horrifying. Someone coming from out of the woods on fire. So police are at the scene and they begin to hear a woman crying out saying, please help me. And she comes walking out of the woods, arms outstretched in nothing but underwear and engulfed in flames. At first, firefighters didn't even know what was going on. They saw this woman and they would later say that they thought she was some kind of monster. That's how badly disfigured she was. But once they realized, oh my God, this is a real person, they rushed to her aid, they threw a blanket on her and tried walking her to safety, but she didn't make it very far before she collapsed. The firefighters are asking her over and over again, what's your name, you know, who are you? Before the woman finally says, Jessica. These guys know exactly who this is. Like I said, it's a small town where everyone knows everyone They know that this is Jessica Chambers. They already knew that there was no way this wasn't intentional. Someone had to have set this car and this girl on fire. So first responders start asking her, who did this to you? Now Jessica was so badly injured, her skin was melting off, her mouth was pretty much non-existent. Yet she somehow musters up the strength to say what first responders said was either Eric or Derek. It's decided that Jessica will be flown to Memphis where they have a burn center in the hopes that they're able to help her. She had sustained burns to almost her entire body, 93%. Her family is notified about what's happened and where she's being sent, and they arrive at the hospital to be with her. Because of the extent of what Jessica's body has gone through, doctors told Jessica's family that there really just was nothing they could do, and it's it's so heartbreaking. Jessica's mother, Lisa, sat by her daughter's side and began to tell her that it was okay for her to let go. And no sooner after she said that, Jessica passed away. Back at the crime scene, investigators are trying to piece together what exactly has taken place. As they begin to look around the car, they find Jessica's cell phone in the grass. Another thing they find was a piece of Jessica's bra. So from this discovery, they're thinking that some type of sexual crime must have been committed. Investigators want to first try and understand where this fire started. Because of Jessica's burn patterns, doctors believed that some kind of accelerant was used. Investigators reviewed photos of her body and could see that the pattern of the burns were almost like splash marks. Like an accelerant was dumped on her. So they believed that she was set on fire first and the car burned as a result, not the other way around. The pieces of her bra that they found at the scene confirmed their theory. Those pieces were tested, and it was determined that they had gasoline on them. So they're piecing these things together little by little, but unfortunately, they only have testimony from one witness, and that was Jessica herself. Even though this is the case, they're still thinking, we've got a pretty good lead, because before she died, she said that someone named Eric or Derek did this to her. So the lead detective on the case gathered the phone numbers and addresses of every Eric and Derek in Panola County. As he's working on compiling all of this information together, another piece of critical evidence is found. A local man was pushing his daughter in a stroller when he saw something shiny in a ditch. It was car keys. And on these car keys, he noticed a tag that said Ben's Body Shop. Because everybody knows everybody, this man realized that Ben Chambers was the owner of that shop. So he knew that he was holding a very important piece of evidence because at this point, everybody already knew what had happened to Jessica. So he turns those keys over to police. Investigators try to pull any DNA evidence possible from the keys. So while they're awaiting those results they're also trying to piece together Jessica's last moments. So it's really interesting to see how this is all being done, because you have one person compiling a list of names and phone numbers, now they have to wait for the keys to be looked at, and then they're trying to put a timeline together, they're interviewing people closest to her. It's just really interesting to see all of the moving parts. So they go to Jessica's mother, Lisa, and ask, you know, Where was she before all of this happened? According to Lisa, Jessica had gone out that morning and was riding around with a friend named Keisha. She came home around 2 in the afternoon and took a nap, then she got a phone call around 4.25. So, Jessica tells her mom that she's going to go to the store. The store that she's referring to is a gas station slash convenience store called M&M's Quick Stop, and she tells her mom, I'll be back in a bit." But she doesn't come back. Instead, Lisa gets a phone call from Jessica at 6.48 that night, and Lisa remembers that Jessica seemed to be a little off. She said that normally, when she would get a call from Jessica, you could hear her music playing in the background, but she noted that during this call, it was really quiet and that was a bit unusual for her. But Jessica told her mom over the phone, I'll be home soon to clean up my room, She told her, I love you, and the call ended. That was the last time that Lisa would hear from her daughter. Once Lisa tells investigators that Jessica had run to the store that day, they go there and ask for the CCTV footage. The clerk is super familiar with Jessica because she comes in there all the time. The clerk's parents own this gas station, and he's super cooperative with police, They review the tape, and it was shortly after 5.20 that Jessica can be seen pulling into the parking lot. She gets some gas, goes inside, talks to the clerk, and then you can see her making a call before driving away. I'm going to post that footage on our Patreon for anyone who wants to go see it. Something, though, that is really awful is that the clerk, whose parents owned the store, He had given an interview with a local news station and people saw it online and were just tearing him apart. There is unfortunately a lot of racial tension in this case. And so people were going online accusing this clerk of killing Jessica. They were saying that he was a terrorist, making comments about how they should burn the gas station down with this guy inside, all because the guy isn't white. His family is from Yemen. And it's really upsetting when these trolls online get involved and want to somehow be able to justify their racism. So the district attorney actually had to like come out to the community and say, hey, this guy has absolutely nothing to do with this. In fact, he's been incredibly helpful and it's clear that he wants this case solved just as much as everyone else does. It's just so messed up because that can really affect a person's life. I don't remember which case it was, or if we even talked about it here on the podcast, but there was a guy being accused of doing something he didn't do, and he ended up taking his own life. But yeah, sorry, just a little rant, but let's get back into it. So investigators also decide, okay, we need to speak with Jessica's friend Keisha. She had been with her that day, and Keisha ended up being a huge piece to the puzzle that investigators were tasked with piecing together. Keisha pretty much confirmed what Lisa told them, that her and Jessica had gone riding around that morning. She also said that they had stopped and picked up a guy named Quentin. The three of them had just kind of rode around, they smoked a little weed, and they actually drove down the road that Jessica would be discovered on later that night. Then they dropped Quentin off. So police look into this Quentin guy. His full name is Quentin Tellis. He's a local. He lives with his mother almost directly across the street from the m M&M and shop. He had a bit of a record. He had actually done time in prison for crimes like burglaries and Jessica had really only known Quentin for about 2 weeks leading up to her murder. So not very long. Obviously police bring Quentin in to be interviewed. He went to the sheriff's office voluntarily and he basically told them what Keisha had said. You know, they had stopped over there, picked him up that morning, they rode around a little bit before dropping him back off at home, and he said that was the last time he saw her. He also makes it very clear that he and Jessica were just friends. So, police want to know if Quentin knows any Eric or Derek that could possibly be connected to Jessica. And he gives the name of Derek Holmes. He actually says that Derek had been acting kind of weird with Jessica, like he would harass her and beg her to go out with him. So they look this guy up. They see that he's done time in jail and he's a registered sex offender for the exploitation of a minor. So investigators are thinking, this has to be our guy. Not only did he serve time in jail, He's a sex offender who happens to have a thing for Jessica, but his name matches the name we were given by Jessica herself before she passed away. So Derek Holmes is brought in for questioning. They ask him, what were you doing on the night of Jessica's murder? And his alibi is its interesting. He says, I was at home rubbing my mother's feet. So the investigators, they kind of laugh and they're like, what? <laughs> how can you remember that you were at home rubbing your feet that night? And he says, well, I, I rub my mom's feet every night. I guess his mom has some type of diabetic condition. But according to Derek's two brothers, his mom, and a few people that were hanging out around the outside of his house, Derek never left home that night. So they're back to the drawing board. They have finally completed this list of all of the Ericks and Derricks in Panola County and the surrounding areas. They come up with 468 Ericks and Derricks and one Jarek. But there's a problem. Almost all of these men that they've rounded up are black. Some of these guys that were being accused took to social media saying that they were being racially profiled. Rightfully so. And this really split the community in half. In fact, the Eric and Derek situation didn't really lead investigators anywhere, it was a dead end. Just as they're losing hope, the lab reveals some new clues pertaining to Jessica's cell phone. So remember, her cell phone was found at the scene of the crime that night. They were, thankfully, able to pull information from the cell phone and that allowed investigators to see all of her calls and texts. And what they don't find is any Eric or Derek that she has ever talked to. What they do find, though, is something that takes them down a different path. In Jessica's cell phone, investigators find a new phone number that hadn't yet been saved as a new contact. Jessica and this person had been in contact for about a week, and they noticed that their conversation had started to turn more intimate, but not on her end. This person had texted her saying explicit things and pretty much asking her for sex all the way from the 3rd until the night that she died on the 6th, and that number is the same number that Jessica had called at the time she was spotted on the footage from the gas station. So, who does this number belong to? Quentin Tellis. Now, if you remember, during Quentin's interview with investigators, he was pretty adamant that him and Jessica were just friends. So, it's like, why would he lie about that? And remember, too, that when Jessica was found, she was nearly nude. She only had underwear on. And they wondered if that could point to her possibly being sexually assaulted. So, investigators go to Quentin's house again. He speaks to them voluntarily again, but this time he tells them something he hadn't before. He tells investigators that he and Jessica had actually had sex before, and one of those times, he made sure to say, was inside of Jessica's car with the seat leaned back, but that was the last time they were intimate, and it was about a week before her death. When Jessica's car was brought in for processing, someone noticed that the passenger seat was leaned all the way back. So investigators have this information and they're like, okay, he's being cooperative. That's great. Hey, Quentin, do you mind showing us around your place? So he does. And he brings them out to this shed on the property. He has his dirt bike stored inside and he's showing them. And something catches their eye. A five-gallon jug of gasoline. Remember, gasoline remnants were found on the pieces of Jessica's bra that were found at the scene. Quinton still reiterates that the last time he had seen Jessica was the time that she dropped him off at his house. So investigators ask, where were you the night of Jessica's murder? And he responds that he was in Batesville, which is about 10 minutes away. He said that he was buying a prepaid debit card that he planned to send to his girlfriend in Louisiana so that she could come and visit him. He says that was a little after 8 p.m. that he went and bought this card and then he came back to Cortland and heard about what had happened to Jessica. And then he says that once he heard about what happened to her, he deleted her from his phone. So investigators now head over to Batesville to try and confirm Quentin's alibi. They go to the store that he said he bought that card at and they talk to the manager. They get the surveillance video and they can see Quentin buying that card at 826. That was about 20 minutes after the 911 call came in to report Jessica's burning vehicle. The store is a 15 minute drive from the crime scene, meaning that he could have been there at the crime scene and made it to the store by that time, but just barely. So for the time being, Quentin Tellis is set aside as a suspect in Jessica's murder. Now, the rumor mill around town is running rampant, one of those being about Jessica's boyfriend. Jessica's boyfriend was a man named Travis Sandford. He was about nine years older than her, and he was spending time in jail for burglary charges. He went to jail about a month and a half before her murder. The two of them were known to have a pretty toxic relationship, he was a bit possessive and controlling, so what people began to speculate was that Travis had somehow gotten word from someone on the outside that Jessica was seeing someone else, and maybe he had put a hit out on her for being unfaithful. Travis was known to affiliate with a local gang, so he was interviewed, but he was ruled out pretty quickly. He was actually super distraught over Jessica's murder, and with that, her case is starting to go cold. But in August, so eight months after Jessica's murder, investigators get access to some phone records. The phone records of Quentin Tellis. Now, they already had Jessica's records, and just from looking at the pings of her location, they knew she was in Batesville at around 6 p.m., Quentin had told investigators that he was in Cortland until about 8 o'clock, and that's when he headed to Batesville to get that preloaded card. We know that Jessica called Quinton from the M&M gas station around 5.30, right? So when they look into Quinton's location, they find that he was actually in Batesville at 6 p.m. Quentin was in Batesville at exactly the same time that Jessica was. And obviously, if the data puts him and Jessica together after 6 o'clock, that changes everything. They go to speak with Quentin again. He's not at home. They have to track him down, and they find him in a jail in Louisiana. This time, he's in jail for fraud. He, again, was very cooperative while speaking to investigators. They tell him this new information that they have, and they're like, can you clear this up for us? He continues to stick to his story. He says, no, I didn't go to Batesville until after 8 o'clock. And investigators are like, okay, well, who had your cell phone then? Because your cell phone was definitely in Batesville before 8 o'clock. And Quinton's like, oh, you know what? I remember now. I did go to Batesville before 8 o'clock. The first time I went there, around 6, I wasn't with Jessica, though. I was with my friend named Big Mike. He says, I saw Jessica, she was at Taco Bell. I got out of Big Mike's truck, gave her $10, a little bit of weed, but then I got back into Big Mike's truck and we go back to Cortland and hang out. So his story keeps changing. They go find this Big Mike guy to see if they can corroborate his story. And Big Mike says, that's not even possible. I was in Nashville at a Tennessee Titans game with my truck. So they knew at this point that Quentin was lying. They go and confront him, and when they do, he finally breaks down and admits to being with Jessica. He said the two of them went to Batesville together before going back to his house. He said that they had gone back to his house, smoked weed together in Jessica's car, and then she left a little after 7. But investigators say, well, the information that we have puts the two of you together until about 7.30. Obviously, that's not enough to arrest him, so unless they find what they need or he confesses, they have to let him go. Fast forward, it's now been a year since Jessica's murder and her killer is still out there. But a couple months later, investigators announced that they have an indictment to arrest Quentin Tellis. Now, again, the town of Cortland is completely divided. You have Jessica's friends and family that are obviously thankful that they might finally get answers and find out what happened to her, and serve her killer with the justice she deserves. But then you have other people saying, There's no weapon, there's no witness testimony, there's absolutely no proof that Quinton is her killer. Is this just a way to close this case? We've seen it before. Police have found a black man with a past and have had them wrongfully convicted. Just look at the story of Sean Ellis. There is a wonderful Netflix original called Trial 4 about his story. I highly, highly recommend it. So, that's kind of where the town is at with this news. And the prosecutors really have their work cut out for them. Nearly three years after Jessica's murder, the trial finally begins. The defense really touched on this idea that Jessica, with her dying words, said that someone named Eric or Derek had done this to her. And the jury really got hung up on that. Not only that, but the defense really focused on the way Jessica lived her life. They said she had been tangled up with some dangerous people, that she had dabbled in drugs from time to time. So, they're trying to get the jury to feel like this could have been anyone, but there's nothing to suggest that it was Quentin. They have one of the first responders who found Jessica that night take the stand. He said that he couldn't understand the name that she tried to say. But then, the defense came in and made this first responder read the statement that he gave during his interview with authorities, where he says that the name Jessica responded with sounded to him like Eric. So, this definitely planted some seeds of doubt in the jury's mind. In fact, everyone that had spoken to Jessica at that time had testified that they heard her say the name Eric or Derek. Investigators also reveal that they have some additional surveillance video. The m and m store just so happens to have a security camera pointed toward Quentin Tellis' house. They can see him leave and then come back around 7.50, but he pulls into his shed, the shed where he keeps his dirt bike and gasoline. Then, he leaves again. So investigators are piecing this together and thinking that this is what happened that night. Quentin and Jessica met up, Quentin because of how sexually aggressive he had been through their text conversations, and because of the amount of times that Jessica rejected him, he could have possibly rendered her unconscious and sexually assaulted her. Then he panics. He gets into the driver's seat of Jessica's car and drives her out to that desolate road where he pours gasoline all over her, even down her throat, everywhere, and then sets her on fire. Then he goes to Batesville to try to give himself an alibi that can be tracked, but what's weird is that Quentin then sends Jessica a text message after she's been lit on fire. He sends her this message that says, "Hey babe, I can't come see you tonight. My girlfriend's coming up. Sweet dreams." This text is very, very different in tone from the ones that he's been sending to her. And according to Quentin himself, him and Jessica were together just 15 minutes prior to him sending that text. So it just doesn't make sense. And it looks like This is just someone attempting to cover their tracks. But unfortunately, this just wasn't enough for the jury to come together and say that Quentin was, without a doubt, Jessica's killer. So when the jury is called to give their verdict, the judge asks, did you all agree on this verdict? You know, because it has to be unanimous. The guy handing over the paper with the verdict on it says, yes, sir, we all agreed on it but one of the jurors begins shaking his head and says, no, we didn't all agree. That's not my verdict. It's a hung jury. So they have to have a retrial. It's now 2018. They present some new information in this trial to try and shoot down the idea that Jessica said a name sounding like Eric or Derek. They show autopsy photos and explain that she was so badly burnt that there was no way anyone could possibly understand what she was trying to say. And after five days, this is now handed over to a new jury. They come back the next day with their verdict. It's another mistrial. Quentin Tellis does not and will not get jail time for the killing of Jessica Chambers. But that's not all. After the trial... Quinton is extradited to Louisiana. Why? Because he's the prime suspect in the murder of another young woman. This all takes place eight months after the murder of Jessica Chambers and right before he would go on trial for her case. In Monroe, Louisiana, an apartment manager notices a smell coming from one of the apartments so he gets the keys and goes inside. Upon entering, it's clear that there's been a struggle, especially in the bedroom. And that's when he finds the body of a young woman. Her body has already started to decompose, but it's clear that she's been stabbed repeatedly. The body belongs to 34-year-old Ming Chen Shao. Her friends here in the States called her Mandy. Mandy was an exchange student from Taiwan and was a graduate of the University of Louisiana. She was stabbed more than 30 times all over her upper body. It was also noted that there were some shallow knife wounds on her body as well, specifically just to inflict pain. While looking through her apartment, investigators find a receipt for a trip to the Walmart pharmacy on July 28th, which they believe to be the day before she was killed. So, police go to this Walmart and they look at the surveillance video, they can see Mandy, she goes outside and gets inside a black Chevy Impala, and as they're reviewing these tapes, they notice that there's someone else inside of the car. It's a younger African-American male. She can also be seen giving this male the painkillers that she had just picked up from the pharmacy moments before. They also take note of some interesting activity in Mandy's financial records. There have been several withdrawals from her account after she was already dead. Now, of course, they know they have to pull the surveillance video for the ATM that this money is being taken from. And they see a man that they saw in the Walmart parking lot. They're able to look at the license plate on the car this man was driving and it comes back that it belongs to Quentin Tellis. Quentin had moved to Monroe, Louisiana to be closer to his then-fiancé, and he just so happened to move into the same neighborhood that Mandy lived in. Quentin Tellis is quickly taken into custody. They're obviously interested in him as a suspect of a murder, but as of right now, They're only able to arrest him on charges related to the unauthorized use of her debit card. So now they have to figure out how to link Quentin to Mandy. They had no physical evidence. But thankfully, a tip comes in from a man who says he has a friend who admitted to killing Mandy. He tortured her for her PIN number, which makes sense with all of those shallow knife wounds, and then stole her debit card so he could take her money there's no way this man would know all of this information. None of it has been released to the public, and he tells police that the man who told him this is Quentin Tellis. This gives police exactly what they need to charge Quentin with the murder of Ming Chen Shao or Mandy. So because Mandy was killed after Jessica Chambers, and Jessica's case is still unfinished, Prosecutors decide to delay his case against Mandy until there's a resolution in Jessica's case. He was transported back and forth from Mississippi to Louisiana, and in June of 2019, after the two mistrials in the case of Jessica Chambers, Quentin Tellis returns to Louisiana and pleads not guilty to second-degree murder in Mandy's case. He did plead guilty to illegally using her debit card, and as a result was sentenced to 10 years for that. It's kind of confusing if you're like me and not super familiar with how all of this works, but it was announced that Quinton wouldn't be tried for the murder of Ming Chen Shao. This is because the state of Mississippi wanted him to serve a five-year sentence for charges related to Jessica's death. So as of now, he is scheduled to be released from prison on October 16th, 2027, But that doesn't mean he won't stand trial in the future in relation to Mandy's murder after serving his sentence in Mississippi. As of right now, it's still in limbo and has left a lot of people wondering will there ever be justice for these two women? Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And remember, my friends, to always. Keep it spooky.